Hey, Culture Hackers. We are on today with Danielle Beinstein, who is a fierce conversationalist, a great intellectual, an overall compassionate human being, and, and good friend of mine. And to give you a little background on her, she's from New York City. And after spending 10 years in the media world, she went back to school and got her MA in spiritual psychology from the University of Santa Monica, and then did an additional year in consciousness, health, and healing. She's fascinated by the roles that feelings play in both our personal and collective experiences and narratives, and she graduated from NYU in 2003 with a BA in Humanities and Magna Cum Laude. So without further ado, here is the episode. Oh, and one more post note that I want to add up front, which is at one point we start talking about suicide, and I mentioned a thought about it, and Danielle responded with, oh, that's so funny, because... You know, she went on because she had a similar insight, and she. I wanted to convey that she didn't mean that it's funny. It's more like when we say that it's really interesting or a coincidence, and she by no means finds it um, funny. In fact, she really worried about that. She's such a compassionate individual that she wanted to convey that in no way is she trying to say that, that suicide is funny. So with that, here's the episode. Hey, Danielle. Welcome to the Culture Hacker Show. I'm so happy to be here. It's really idyllic back yeah, you here. Like it? Yeah, I like this oak. We're sitting under this giant oak. Yeah. This sort is... of like Oprah light. <laughs> <laughs> Super Soul Sunday. This, I think, is our first outdoor podcast. We are outdoors at my parents' backyard. It's very subversive 90s. <laughs> <sort of> <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things that came out of need because I was testing all the audio um, inside and it was getting this feedback. And then I, this was the only place I could do it. But I think it's appropriate for, um, you know, somebody who's a, uh, a, a yoga meditation aficionado like yourself. Well, not yoga. No? No. Um, I do do yoga. Okay. But I don't teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I practice it. Meditation. Writing, personal growth, astrology, yeah, that jazz. It's also nice that we're not under ash because yesterday the entire sky was ash and yeah. now it seems to be crystal blue. Jeez, here now, what was it? I heard 10,000 acres burned or something. I thought it was 11,000. Yeah. Let's not get specific. <laughs> <laughs> so you just came from your astrology class. Yes, I had a, an astrology class the other night and sort of my 101 on astrology and you know, my big thing is self-discovery and self-awareness, and it's just another tool. Mm. A lot of people move into fear with it. Yeah. Like clients will say, Wait, I'm, I don't want to hear anything bad. And I don't have that philosophy. I think everything is an opportunity for growth and healing. Yeah. And so I, I want to challenge you on this because, <laughs> you know, you're somebody who I think if, if you met without talking about astrology, you'd say there's no way this girl's into it because you're you're such a sharp, analytical, academic kind of mind. And then if you start talking about astrology, it seems like this total contrast. It's it's absolutely true. And I fought within myself for years and years and years. So I first discovered astrology when I was 19 years old and an undergrad at NYU. And I just kind of felt like a freak. And I didn't know why I felt so different. And I discovered this huge book called The Birthday Book. A lot of people know about it. Um, and it's every single birthday. And it describes the personality. And I read mine and I was like, you've got to be kidding. What is this? What? I mean, kind of knew I was a Virgo. Maybe I must have known. But that's all I knew. And I read this and I thought, how can this person capture 
my personality so clearly. And so I started to research it. And I just, the more I discovered, the more complex and layered it became. So most people think astrology is just your sun sign. Yeah. But there are 10 celestial bodies in the sky. And where they fall at any given moment, they make geometric patterns to any other one. Right. So it's not just that I'm Aquarius. There's all these other things within there, which is why people can kind of claim BS that all Aquariuses are alike because there's a lot more nuance to it from what you've discovered. Exactly. Because we're all layered and we're all complex. So someone might have, you know, four planets in Aquarius. And so they're going to have a heightened, more pure Aquarian energy. Right. But someone could have their sun in Aquarius and it's conjunct Saturn and it's, you know, square Mars, and that's going to have an impact on their personality. So I think I like it because it's like a puzzle piece. So you basically found that, okay, this stuff, it's accurate. It's working. I might as well use it. Yes, because it's archetypal. What does that mean? So we each have all different personality types within us. Just some of us have stronger personality types. For example, the Aries personality in its raw form, energy in its raw form, undiluted, is go-getter energy. It's pure. It's, um, it's enterprising. It's passionate. It's sort of the inner warrior. Mm. So we all have that within us because we all have every sign within us. Yeah. But some people might have it more potent. It might be more potent in their chart. And that person, they're really connected to their inner warrior. Someone else who has a ton of Libra, opposite Aries, who's diplomatic and wants to acquiesce often and wants to find harmony, they might not have as much access within themselves to their inner warrior. So to me, it's just looking at all the different ways that we and all the different personality types and how... We're just layered and complex. And sometimes in different areas of our life, different aspects of our personalities come out. So, for example, I tend to be more intellectually alpha, but more emotionally beta. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in my chart. So I have to sort of overcome a fear of confrontation, right? Or a fear of um, asserting myself. Yeah. Whereas intellectually, that's fairly easy for me. Yeah. Right. So it's sort of it. What I like about it is that it's, yeah, the complexity of it and the layers. And when I look at a person's natal chart, which is a snapshot of the sky the moment they were born, it's a puzzle piece to me. Huh. And where do, where do you see it go off the rails? Like, where do you see people doing it or saying something to you and you just put your head down and say, oh, God. So big thing is, you know, someone will say, I'm a Sagittarius and he's a Taurus. It's always in relationships. It's always, it seems to be in romantic relationships and automatically fear comes up. So someone will say, he's an Aquarius. Uh-oh, he's detached. And I'm like, the, what, you, can, you cannot simplify it like that, right? You have to be able, so there's that. And then there's with transit. So what's currently going on in the sky and how that affects our personal chart, our natal chart. People automatically go into fear about something. And so that is where I just feel like it's inaccurate. It's scare tactics, right? And the human desire for for certainty or to know and many people fear change, mm-hmm. even though embracing change is one of the keys to success and yeah. inner fulfillment. Most people fear it. So they automatically think change bad, right? And part of the thing that I love about astrology is that we're all on natural cycles and that change is inevitable. And that growth is a part of life. So we either embrace it or we shun it. 
to our at our own expense. Yeah. So you know, to me, it's just. It's a tool for self-actualization yeah. and self-awareness. I got to say, you're like one of the only people I can stand to listen to about it on Facebook, like when they're talking about it, because I don't know what you do. You, you, you ground it in something that feels real. And sometimes I even think to myself, like, you know, how much of this is Danielle and how much of this is the astrology? Because I like what you have to say. And I'm like, is she reading this off the chart and that's what she's you know getting it from there? Or is this your opinion that you're taking your spin off of it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's definitely my spin, and I definitely harness my astrological awareness or my archetypal awareness to help people become more self-aware. So I could say the exact same thing without that astrological component, and it would be maybe just as effective, but there's a certain component or a certain type of person who craves the astrological knowledge. Yeah. So I, or they feel it legitimizes it. Yeah. And then there's a certain sector that feels like it makes it illegitimate. So I'm always sort of navigating those that's two amazing. worlds. <laughs> and so I think it's sort of like my Jewish New Yorker that's the skeptic. Yeah. And then there's my inner mystic. Um, right. That embraces it. And there's a duality within me. Yeah. And I'm just always navigating and trying to reach both aspects of my personality right with my expression yeah so how is it that i find you're always able to both like laugh at this stuff (laughs) and take it seriously at the same time it's like in any given moment you could just be thinking this is ridiculous and like this is really powerful stuff and you're you're somehow able to mix those two i don't know i I don't know maybe it is the jewish new yorker in me that's kind of rolling her eyes Uh that's like what you know really i mean i really did you know there are people who like they really want to be a shaman. I'm not a shaman, but they really want to be a shaman or a mystical healer. Like I was dragged kicking and screaming into this. Like I did not, my (laughs) ego was like, you've got to be kidding. We're supposed to be a lobbyist on the Hill or an executive. Like, what are you doing? And I just discovered I had, I had an aptitude for it. And so, and it seemed to make the most sense. And then I realized that it was a niche that wasn't being filled. Right. That there was, there were people who were talking about astrology, but it was all outside of the individual, yeah. right? So they were a victim of whatever was happening. Mm-hmm. And then there were people who were talking about self-empowerment, but they weren't, they weren't providing individualistic tools yeah. or um, modalities of self-awareness. And so to me, it was an opportunity to, to bridge them. Yeah. How much do you find that with people where, like, they're on one path and so surprised? Like, you remind me of, uh, I remember when Krishna Das, the, the kirtan instructor, was talking about he went to, to India, like, on this pilgrimage looking to find the guru. And he finds this guru, and the guru, when he gets there, says, you got to look into Jesus. And he's this, you know, New York Jew himself yeah. looking for Buddha, yeah. and this guru says, look at Jesus. Yeah, I think that you just never know where... That's funny. I had a huge... I thought I was going to convert to Christianity. was obsessed with Jesus all through college and huh. after college and um, Christian history. And it didn't go over so well with my parents. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I really... You know, I think that different... And different um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think there's a past life component. Or sometimes I think there's just a part of our personality and our type of relating to the world that's drawn to certain figures. Mm. And we can get, we can really try and analyze it, but I think there's almost, it's just a purer sense of connection of whoever 
you feel drawn to on a spiritual level. Yeah. And is there someone you feel drawn to or is it just the work, the, the astrology? Um, well, I feel like in terms of figures, I've always been drawn to the Marys and Jesus. Really? Yeah. Always Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene and Jesus. What's that all about? That triangle. I mean, I think it's because I sort of have this eternal fascination with um, male, female, mm. masculine, feminine, and why, not why, just, I just have this fascination with mm-hmm. um, our, our notions about it. And, you know, there were, there was a time, there have been periods in history where the female is exalted. The goddess is exalted. Mm-hmm. And then there's this amazing book by Leonard Schlein who passed away a couple of years ago. He was a neurosurgeon at University of San Francisco. And he wrote, I think his first book was Art and Physics, I believe, which looked at parallel advancements made um, by artists and physicists at the exact same time that were connecting something in the ether. But then he wrote this book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, hmm. which is incredible work. And it charts history through the lens of the advent of literacy. And basically he says that once cultures became literate, um, they moved from being a right brain society to a left brain society. And they started, um, they started to move into patriarchy because their idea of their, they became much more linear and rational in their thought. Right. And it's a phenomenal, phenomenal work. And, read that in college a professor turned me on to it and to his work and I've always been fascinated by that sense of you know the innate wisdom that at least historically or culturally women seem to have Mm. um and how we've moved into into an ultra in some ways we've moved into an ultra rational ultra masculine way of being especially in urban cosmopolitan environments yeah um and then but yet there's like this underlying uprising that's happening of like the goddess movement so i don't i just find that duality really interesting yeah it's interesting because i came at that angle from marshall McLuhan's work who's a media theorist and he was he he talks all about how um the printing press was really established about uh, nationalism because you could spread that propaganda really easily and uh, he, he talked about this interesting theory that before that printed language, we had no internal monologue because we, you know, when you learn to read, like you're in kindergarten, you learn to say it in your head. And that's from reading, we start to develop saying things in our head. And without that reading, we don't really say things in our head. We just feel and be and act. That's really fascinating in terms of meditation. How so? So if meditation began... Before the printing press, really, uh-huh. before we started reading, yeah. it was probably easier for them to access a transcendental state. Right. <laughs> Way easier. <laughs> yeah. They weren't. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder. Yeah, and I heard a crazy story. Um, I was some, hearing some Navy SEALs talking about it, actually, um, who were talking. I think the book is called Meditations on Violence. Mm. That, that uh, meditation actually came from, at least from the J- Japanese lineage, from warriors because they at least according to this book in the story they said that they the samurais 
would be in battle and it's you know it's very mentally mm-hmm. disciplined focused centered all those things and after that they had no skills to be able to come to the real world <laughs> you know and then nothing so they actually were the ones who became the monks on the mountains and that they um they were most attuned to it so they would do this meditation and interestingly they they got it from this warrior training and that level of focus but people saw them meditating on the hill and said oh that's what i need to do i need to sit there and do nothing and then i'll get this enlightenment but it actually came from their warrior training. I guess that fits with all the athletes who meditate. Really? Yeah. And some I haven't I'm, heard about athletes who meditate. Oh yeah, yeah, like the Seattle Seahawks. No way. Yes. It's a big part of their what? practice. Yeah, because meditation helps you focus. It helps in sports you have to be in the moment. Yeah. Right? Completely in the moment. And many people find sports meditative in that way. Right, totally. But it, it increases their capacity. Do you know do they do transcendental meditation or which one they do or how they do it? My guess is they do TM, but I don't know. But there's, there's been um, a lot of literature on it. And especially the Seattle Seahawks, I feel like, are known for that. Yeah. I've been experimenting with this meditation technique I just kind of made up. <laughs> Which is what? So you, Rob. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's much better than the first one I made up. The first one I made up was called banana meditation, where you just think of a banana for like 10 minutes. And that's all you do. That's choosing a focal point. <laughs> right. There you go. It didn't work that well, though. <laughs> Eventually, you start thinking about other fruits, and then, yeah. But uh, this, this one, I was sitting there meditating, and I don't know how it came to me, but I was just thinking, you know, when you get a massage, yeah. you're not doing anything. You just let yourself get massaged, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a physical, on a physical level. Yeah. So what if meditation is spiritual massage? What if you could just let yourself be meditated, and like rather than doing something or trying to clear thoughts or anything like that, you just sit there and let it happen. And that mind shift for me actually did something because it was less of the like, oh, I got to bring my attention back, bring my focus back, bring the breath or, oh, I'm, I'm like that actually started to feel like work. Whereas just be there, mm-hmm. that kind of took off some of the pressure and the action and I could just ease into it. I love that because you're just surrendering to the moment. Right. Essentially. It's interesting because there's, yeah, there's two, not two trains of thought, but there's the sort of your mind is wandering, bring it back to focus. And then there's the more TM, which is like, just like welcome in the thoughts. Just Mm. let them, welcome them in, let them pass on through, which is more of kind of what you're talking about. Well, my experience with TM was that they keep guiding you back to the mantra that you're like, notice your thoughts are off and go back to the mantra, go back to the mantra. Yes. But there's a sense of welcoming in the thoughts as opposed to dominion over the thoughts. Yeah. I liked hearing that Tim Ferriss does it, and he was saying something that felt very freeing. He said, if you have, you know, 19 and a half minutes of thought and, and, and 30 seconds of on the mantra, like, you've succeeded at your He's meditation. He's right. Yeah. You know, we're an alpha society. Right. So we think we have to do things the best. But meditation is really just about being. I know. Sitting but there. Do you ever see those, like, Ken Wilber tapes of him meditating? No. He, you know, he's this philosopher who, like, he gets out these these uh, brainwave um, sensors. And, you know, beta is usually uh, um, analytical. Alpha is a very focused state. Theta is like dreaming. And right. delta is dreamless sleep um, where you just have no thoughts. And he puts these things on. And you see the beta kind of going crazy because he was putting the machine together. And then in a moment, he drops into, like, pure delta. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, he had, he's, he's, like, nowhere right now. And then he gets even crazier because he's, he's narrating it. He's obviously not talking, but on the video he's narrating. And he's like, and now here's where I just drop it entirely. And all the brain waves go to nothing. And you're like, what's he now? Is he dead? <laughs> and so I see that and I'm like, I want that. I want to be able to just go and just like straight into some other world. 
So it turns into a goal. Yes. Which is exactly what it's not supposed to be. I know, (laughs) but I want it. (laughs) How very American and male. (laughs) Perfect. I just want to know what kind of kid you were when you were like four and five. Hmm. I was definitely always like asking questions, asking why, um, like inventing things, trying to figure things out. I always kind of saw myself as an inventor. And I started to question things really early, though, because one of my classmates died when I was three. And they did not explain it well to us at all. In fact, the explanation I remember, whether this is true or not, my memory was they said the doctors worked too hard on her, which is awesome to learn as a kid, right? <laughs> so disturbing. So disturbing. So I remember asking my mom all the time, I was like, did she turn into a skeleton yet? Like, what's happening to her? What's going on? And so by at three, I started to contemplate, like, death and my own death and what's going to happen. And so I started thinking about big things pretty early. That's so – we're similar in that way. I feel like do all kids – I mean, I had this experience when I was – I feel like that age where the teacher was – I don't know, we were talking about colors, and I was like, I don't – how do I know that yellow to me is yellow to you? Oh, wow. I have no, we have, I have no sense of if we're having the same inner experience as a kid. And I once told that to my mom and she's like, I had the same thought as a kid. Really? So I thought that was interesting. We had a moment of connection in that, in that way. And I, I think I have my philosophical mind from her. I want, it reminds me of the story by um, uh, Dr. Mark Goulston that, that I think about sometimes. He's, uh, he, he talked about, you said you love like CIA and that kind of I stuff. Do. The, I he he stuff. would do hostage negotiations. Oh. And he, brilliant guy. And so he was talking about how he got sent in to this suicidal woman who's like basically like in a, in a mental institution, just so ready to end her life. And they're like, all right, can you, can you help us with this? And he goes in there, you know, prepared to kind of talk her down, talk her out of it. He he just touches her her shoulder, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden his vision changes to this like black and white awful world that he see, and he's like he's seeing the world through her eyes and just how horrible things look, and he just stopped and had a total change of tactic, and he says he says to her, "Wow, I I got to tell you, if you end your life, mm-hmm. I'll understand," and just gets it. This is so interesting that you say this. I've been having this conversation with um, yeah. a therapist I know. Oh, sorry. Let me just wrap okay, that yeah, up. Sorry, real sorry, quick. sorry. No, no, because I did just the, the, the ending of it is so cool, which is that she turns to him and says, Maybe if you understand why, I won't have to. This is exactly <laughs> the conversation that I've been having with a therapist friend of mine who. Um, has some clients who've had extreme trauma and we were we were talking about this because the there's especially in the spiritual movement there's this philosophy that if you if you commit suicide you're going to have to come back and it's going to have to be worse right there's there's that line of thinking there's that or being a civil servant in heaven that's the <laughs> other one yeah exactly right so there's this um there becomes this shame around experiencing deep pain around Mm. trauma and the idea of suicide. And I think for people who've never experienced severe depression, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. They don't understand, but unless they have an empathic imagination, which usually the people who have empathic imaginations come from trauma. So there's a lack of understanding. And I've always felt that that sense of alienation and isolation increases one's desire to end their life. Mm-hmm. Because they feel that no one understands their pain. Right. And then they feel judged for the idea that they don't want to be here anymore because right. it's so painful. And so we were talking about how 
the therapist then takes on the responsibility of, of feeling like they need to keep their patient alive and it becomes up to them. And if they don't, they failed them. We were talking because we were talking about how actually the most powerful tactic to work with someone who's experienced real trauma is really through empathy mm. and really saying, I really, un you know what? I understand that desire because if I had to live in that level of pain all the time, mm -hmm. I don't know that I want to be here either. Yeah. And it's, it just speaks to the larger trend in our society, which is a fix-it modality instead of an empathic modality. And I feel like it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So. Totally. It's just, yeah. Well, speaking of CIA, does, <laughs> does, I got this just hit. Like, do you, do you have a, a secret desire to be a CIA agent? Like I, feel like, I feel like, yeah. I feel like if I were tougher, then I feel like, yes, I just find it fascinating. I find... Any kind of movie about the CIA and kind of show about the CIA, I think it's because it's psychology, mm. right? It's understanding people's motivations. It's understanding how to access them. It's understanding that every decision we make has a psychological origin. Mm. And it really, it cuts through the idea that we're all different mm. in a way. Like all human beings crave and need something. And... An agent's job, I think, is to understand their asset, to get their asset to trust them. Yeah. And then there's also just the part of me, I think, that craves larger purpose. So if you're a CIA agent, there's something about you, you're committed to your cause. And I think that, I think culturally... We're experiencing sort of a renaissance of the six. I shouldn't say renaissance because it's renaissance sounds like the Medici family and it's like a lot of art, although they were Machiavellian and all of that. But the, just this sort of sense of culturally we're going through a massive shift. And I think that there's something about um, what we're experiencing with all of, you know, Black Lives Matter and um, gay rights. And th there's this. We need to fight for something, I think, as people. Mm. I think we need to, in order to find purpose, otherwise we devolve into just materialism and, mm. and endless acquisition. I think there's something innate to the human incarnation that needs something to live for. Mm. And there's something that's happening, I feel like, culturally yeah. that speaks to that. Yeah. I was hearing this podcast with Joe Rogan and the guest was talking, they were talking about Mormonism and just the, like the ridiculousness of the, of the story. And at least they felt that way about it. <laughs> Jesus descends on the Aztecs. That's like kind of, I, I don't really, I saw that when I was in Salt Lake city, I saw the video, but I don't remember it. Much. There's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff to the story where it makes you raise your eyebrow. Right. Um, but he, the, the guest was saying, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not the content but the believing that matters, that whatever our biology, if we strongly believe in something, it creates what we want, no matter what that thing is. Yeah, I think beliefs are our most powerful tool. I mean, this is your thing, right? Yeah. With your expel, am I yeah. allowed to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like the effect of our beliefs. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I co-facilitate uh, an intention, a new moon intention setting circle. And yeah, it sounds really woo-woo, but... Essentially, it's if you believe something 
can happen, Mm -hmm. it's more likely to happen, right? And so what we do is we teach people to set their intentions, Mm -hmm. um, to manifest their dreams, and then to move their subconscious in that direction. They're they're more likely to take action steps towards the fulfillment of that dream. Totally. And then it has to be about willing to receive it. Yeah. Right? And that's all around beliefs. If you don't believe you're ever going to be successful, you're never going to be successful. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I don't have the data on that, but I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Have, have you heard about um, like competing beliefs, competing commitments? Competing intentions is how I've understood it. Yeah. I think that there's – I think that's everywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about Tony Robbins and, and – um, um, we'll talk about his documentary in a sec, but I was at uh, Date with Destiny, his big event. Yeah. Um, That's that they what the doctor's based, yes. Yeah. And he, you know, he gets people who are suicidal and he gets her on stage. And it's, it's incredible because in the, in the movie you just see a small clip, but he's working sometimes with people for an hour or two. And on stage he developed um, the values that she wanted and the things that she didn't want. And he shows visually – how they are in competition and shows the audience. He said, do you realize why she has no way out? Because if she gets this, then it comes with this. If she gets that, it comes with that. And he shows you how her values were so against each other that there was no way out. And it it blew our minds. Yeah, I think, I feel like he's, he's descended to do exactly what he's doing. I feel like he's one of those people on this planet that is, is just exactly where he's supposed to be. Like, I don't, what else oh, yeah. could he have done or been? You know, I just feel like everything from the. He's like the Elvis, I think, of personal development. I think, I think that's true. I also think he has a hyper masculine approach. Right. Um, and I, it's extremely effective, especially because he's so heart centered mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. Right. I think that he has, it's like watching theater. Yeah. Right. It has the same emotional as someone who's been going to the theater since I was five or six years old. It has the same emotional impact as watching great theater. Yeah. Um, and the takeaway is always personal, even if you're watching him work with someone else. Right. That's and he understands how to the the universality and the specifics. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, he does have this as I perceive it. I haven't done Date with Destiny, so I, mm-hmm. I don't have that experience. But I've. Yeah, that documentary, I was sobbing through it. Yeah. Just to, you know, be honest. Really? Yeah, I was just sobbing. Wow. Yeah, I just find, I, because a lot of that, on my, when I work with clients, I am, I'm working with um, their limiting beliefs, their, um, their lack of self-love, their, you know, it comes from my own, it comes from my own trauma. And, and so I, I understand his motivation in that way mm-hmm. and it really speaks to me i'm obviously not nearly that theatrical but i just i know that moment of feeling freed and the actions that come after that are the actions that come after that but that moment of feeling like someone actually sees you mm. and someone actually hears you and i can't even imagine like his his just size mm-hmm. And having that, especially as a male figure, because I think a lot of women um, have an unconscious fear of men. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was at a David Data event, and one of the things he has us do is at the beginning, we go in our separate groups. All the men get together. 
all the women get together. The women, I don't know what they do, but I heard they kind of flow and breathe and touch. And, and the men, we kind of, you know, run around and roar and, 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 and wrestle. And, and, uh, and then when we did that, the second day we came in and, um, you know, he, he pulled the, the women and said, when you first saw these guys come in the, yesterday, how many of you did not trust them? And like, most of the women's hands went up. And then after that exercise, when we got like grounded in our masculinity, they got in their feminine. She, they said, how many of you women would now trust these men like with your life? And the hands all went up. I feel like, I feel like that's a collective issue. And I feel like it speaks to a lot of um, the cultural evolution around male and female relationships. I just, I think a lot of women carry this, unconscious or conscious fear and it it shapes their lens and then their decisions and mm. their reactions to men i mean I, and i'm speaking for myself i feel like where do women feel like, I know, what kind of moment do you feel that you know i feel it in terms of some women feel it on a physical level i feel it my experience has been emotional but like what's a, a scene where you would experience it um you know, it can be, well, as someone, so I used to be in media and I worked with men a lot and I would see, I would see cutting and sort of, um, sometimes cruel behavior and remarks mm -hmm. by men, not even necessarily towards women. And this could just speak to my own like deep sensitivity, but it, I always had that fear that at any moment it could be turned against me, which is, which as I got older realized came from my childhood and my experiences. I'd been bullied from the time I was little from, by boys and, um, my dad isn't exactly soft. So, you know, I think that a lot of times girls, their relationship with their fathers or their relationship, um, with men, yeah. Do you, do you and and is do you see this? You you want to talk about the goddess stuff? Do you see the goddess as the as the counteract of that, or what's your interpretation of all this goddess talk going on? Well, I think it's sort of a reclaiming of the feminine. Um, although, what does that even mean? Because we talk about goddesses, there are you know there are warrior goddesses. There's Venus. You know, there, there's different. Is tropes the right word? There's different, there's different um, ways of being feminine. I don't think there's one way. But I think it's sort of a reclaiming of an earthiness. Uh -huh. Whereas, you know, growing up in Manhattan um, and seeing a lot of women in power suits and, and leaning into sort of the more masculine form of feminine strength or feminism, I think there's a counterbalance to that more than towards men. I think it's actually a reaction to feminism. Maybe that's it it's some kind of reaction. Because I think you know, if, if I were to form like I know women who have their sister goddesses, yes, yes. and if I said I'm a god and I got my 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 man god friends around me, like people would find it the most ridiculous thing ever. Right. I think that it's you know I was someone until who until fairly recently, as much as I feared men I also in a way felt more comfortable with them because um you you knew where they stood more than women yes I knew where they stood more and also I feel like I don't have the I'm uh, the sort of classical feminine desires for marriage and family mm -hmm. and so 
I felt that, and I have a lot of wide ranging interests and I felt that, and this, this was my experience. I'm not making a judgment against all women, but that a lot of my experiences of being around women became talking about relationships and men and wanting to settle down. And that, and when I would talk to men, I could talk about politics Mm. and, um, cultural history and business. I mean, there were so many other, I felt that there were so many other kind of conversations that I could have. Um, and that, that's my own lens and my own thing to work out. And then inside of myself, I, I found the blending of that and then kind of experienced that. But that's, I think, I do think that there is a necessary reclaiming of, you know, the sort of classic qualities of nurturing and community and um, that women bring to the table. Yeah. And I think that, I think there's a biological component to that. I don't think it's just nurture. Like, I think it is actually women are more wired for that. Right. How does this play into what you're talking about with with Melania and and and, Ivan, and Ivanka Trump and the difference there? What, what was that distinction? Well, there was a there was a piece in the Times the other day how men a lot of there's a very sort of old fashioned um, ideology that Trump is a part of where they want to marry the Melanias but they want their daughters to be independent. So what what does that mean? So it it means that there's a it's hypocrisy is not the right word, but at, at, you know, as men tend to have daughters, their ideas about feminism change, mm. right? They they want their daughters to grow up to be strong and independent and capable and intellectually assertive, but they don't necessarily want that from their wives, you know? They, mm. And so, but yet we see a shift culturally, right? Like Tim Kaine's wife is incredibly accomplished. Obviously, Hillary Clinton's incredibly accomplished. And so... You know, then I read this piece in the New York Times, I think it was like a year ago, about, you know, Hollywood second marriages and how studio heads and the their second wives are women who are accomplished and have drive, like Les Moonves's wife and um, Brad Gray's wife, and that they do have, they're not just there to smile. Hmm. And so I think that they're, I think, what was it, like the new trophy wife is, is, uh, is ambitious and driven yeah, and not just a trophy, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> right. I don't know. But I think that, that I think that we're confused where, where we're in the throes of change. We haven't quite found our way to the other side Yeah, in terms of how it's supposed to look in modern society. Yeah. And people want it all, and I and they're exhausted. How much do you think it is about like knowing ourselves and getting honest? Because with with you know, as you were talking about, you you were following that path of wanting marriage and children, and then said, "Wait a minute, maybe th- this isn't really what I want." And I think other women are following that career path and not fully realizing that they would. You know what? I'd love to just not work and have a kid and chill out, and that would be you know better. And how how much do you think it's about that about knowing what we really actually want? Well, I'm just gonna stop you there okay. because. Th- you don't have a kid and chill out. <laughs> Having a kid is is arguably the hardest job on the planet, which is actually the reason I'm not sure I want to do it. Well, I it meant that as a four seven job, doing that and working <laughs> oh, a yes. full time job. Yes, but it's yes, no, absolutely. I think that there is well, there's the biological imperative. Yeah, 
which is huge. Right. And then there's the conditioning. This is what I'm supposed to do. Right. And I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, as I've sort of come out more and said, you know, this is not something that I want. It's been very interesting because I get two responses. One is, um, oh, you just haven't met the right person yet. Right. (laughs) And, um, or you'd be a great mother. Right. I get that, which is a compliment. Thank you. Cause I do think I'm a nurturer. Um, or I get the, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't have kids. Mm. Like if I, it, you know, I love my, this is always it. I love my kid. I can't imagine living without my kid, but don't do it. How many times have you heard that? A lot. Really? A lot. Um, and are they from women who are, who are working a lot or not working a lot or? Uh, both. Really? Both. There's, um, and then, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine from college who's married, has been married for years and, um, you know, she she doesn't think she wants kids and she was on she lives in york and she was on metro north she was on a train she was sitting next to a man and she's she'll be 36 soon and the man said no you have to you have to get on that you have to freeze your eggs and she said would you like to pay for the bills of having a child she's like my nephew is autistic if i have an autistic child i can't afford to have an autistic child if i have a child who's sick i can't afford that i am the breadwinner mm. and i can't afford that and he was like, you, you really should do it. You really should. You should have kids. You're going to regret it. And she said, I don't know you, first of all. And second of all, you know, I think that there's it's very easy to look at someone else and tell them what they should do. Right. Right. And I think that especially for our generation of women and as millennials, so we're on the cusp, right? We're making a fraction of what our parents made. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the pressure feels more. And it's women, a lot of women are the breadwinners. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy conversation. Yeah. My friend Dan has a really cool sentence he uses. He, 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 he prefaces things sometimes by saying, my current belief is. Yes, I love that. And it's, it's great because it just says, this is where I'm at. You know, and you, you might be right. Maybe, maybe, maybe I will be there. Who knows? This is my current belief. This is where I'm at. And, and I uh, yeah, I love using that phrase too. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, of course, I can't tell you how I'll feel in five years, in 10 years, I have, I do kind of have this sense that I will adopt one day or Mm -hmm. there's a child who will come to me who is, will not be born of me, Mm -hmm. but I don't, it's not, it's not my motivator to get married and have children. And I don't, you know, that, that's such a person, it's such a personal decision and there's no right and there's no wrong. And anytime anybody has a reaction, it is 100% a projection. Mm. Because especially people who don't know me. I mean, the only people really who could be conceivably invested are my parents because they would be the grandparents. They'd be having more progeny. Right. But there's anyone else. It's really it's not there. It's not theirs to really contemplate or even think about. But I do get it's it's interesting to see the responses that I get from people. To something so intense. Do you get triggered by it or are you able to kind of distance yourself from it? I'm able to distance myself. I think when I was, you know, it's interesting when I was younger and thought that's what I wanted, Uh I was more triggered by people's responses of like, oh, if you want that, then you should get this and you should do this and you should do this. And this is how you should. And now that I've been, now that I've come to peace within myself about my current belief, I'm going to use that. It is what it is. And Mm -hmm. so if someone has an opinion about it, it's just so clearly not mine. 
Yeah. Which and tells me I'm in greater peace with my decision than if yeah. I were triggered. And sometimes on the other end, if I have those thoughts come to mind, I'll just say to somebody like, would you like some advice on that? Or would you like some feedback on that? And yeah. sometimes they'll just say no. And I'll be like, cool. I don't need to say it. Just, you know, asking that permission if they want. And sometimes they say, yeah, I really need it. And um, but that that it's the respect to ask them the permission first. The unsolicited advice. Yeah. Is rampant in our culture. <laughs> rampant. It's like I have a novel idea. People actually have the ability to find their own answers if they just get still and quiet. Well, I do think it comes from a place of, of caring about the person, though. It might not be working, but I do think that when we do that, we really do want the best for somebody. Unless you're sitting next to them on a train and you've never <laughs> met them before and they're telling and you, you what you do with up. your ovaries. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know about that. That just seemed wild to me. And she said that that will happen to her a lot um, in, in just various experiences that she has so yeah i think it does and it's also you know we love in the way we know how to love and and often that means we think we know what's best for people yeah but that's not actually at a core loving loving is acceptance right so not to make this episode too dated but uh, i gotta ask what's what's your current take on the on the trump situation here oh my god um (laughs) (laughs) did you catch did you catch any of the uh the convention speech I really did. You know, I actually, I have to say, because I always look for that nuance or that that moment. I really, um, that moment when he was talking about the, um, the gay and lesbian community and the transgender community and the, the audience clapped and supported him and he stopped and he said, thank you for clapping. I felt that that was a moment of humanity. I felt that that was unscripted and Mm. I felt that he was actually, he actually believes in gay rights. Mm -hmm. Um, although he chose Mike Pence. So I, I mean, I, I really, I don't know with this guy, I really feel like it started as a joke and, this is the result of a culture that embraces Duck Dynasty over intellectual discourse. <laughs> when I was I watching really, the I convention, I felt like, like I, if, if, if I was watching this 10 years ago, I'd say, oh, this is Saturday Night Live skit right now that I'm watching. It, it's, it's Donald surreal. Trump at the convention. Like, this is Saturday Night Live. It's surreal. Yeah. And I, I think I'm in disbelief. And I am not – I am open to – Republican principles. I mean, I, I, let's have a state's rights versus federal rights conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's have that. Let's have, you know, a free market conversation versus a regulated market conversation. But that's not what's happening here. Yeah. Isolationism versus intervention. That's fine. But this is just, it is reality TV, except it's, it feels like unreality TV. It's right. just surreal to me. And, you know, that we live, we, I, it also just feels like it is the shadow coming up to be mm, exposed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, and the David Duke elements, and there is something about it that feels like this is the worst humanity has to offer. Like, let's just, let's just fill people with fear and insecurity and manipulate them and capitalize on it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's in a way he gives this people a comfort. Yeah, well, because I don't think they leave scared. At least the fans don't leave scared of it. They leave leave feeling good. 
Well, it's a false note. It's like superheroes. Like, I'm going to come in and right. just fix everything. And Which is every presidential he, race. Every presidential race. Never mind that he's driven every single business into the ground. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so I just – to me, what's the most fascinating is the lack of curiosity. I feel like he, I feel like the joke is on his supporters because I really feel like he and he said it he could do anything and they just support him. I mean they don't I, I and I don't know what what that's about and I listen I understand taking issue with Obama's policies but the vitriol for him as an individual when I mean, I'm a huge fan well, of his, so I just don't... He, he's like Steve Jobs in that sense. The the way Steve Jobs is always like, this is either insanely great or it's just awful. And he had no middle ground. And they say with Trump, he's either just loves you and thinks you're the best thing ever or thinks you're the enemy. Based on what you think of him. Like he either... Oh, it's like yeah. It's completely yeah, yeah. narcissist. Right. It's not... There's no... It's, he, it's he cannot think outside of himself. It's insane. And the fact that... His supporters, he doesn't read a single book ever on any, he doesn't read. Yeah. And I, he doesn't take in information. Yeah. So we'd have what, just a pure gut president? Right. Which is terrifying to someone, for someone to have the nuclear codes and go on their gut only. Right. And then the argument is, well, Obama didn't have any experience, but he's a thoughtful, brilliant man right so at least he's he's going to think something through i his temperament is the most scary to me yeah it you know have you heard of this book called true believer no you gotta read this okay. it explains all this it was written in 1951 by a dock worker okay and i've never highlighted so much of a book really yeah it's incredible he it, it, it it's written in 1951 yet it feels like a breakdown of the trump campaign because he talks about everything from how uh, uh, somebody in this position will demonize the present and glorify the past and the future. And it's built into that slogan, make America great again. We were great. We're not now. We will be again. And he talks about how anybody in this position, you need to demonize the present moment entirely. Glorify the past. Glorify the future. And that's like built into everything he's doing. And that's just one nugget of him explaining all these things that are being used and how people who um, – people don't actually want freedom. They – They do not. I'm a know. huge believer of that. Right. That it's that, – that level of responsibility of I am, I am actually responsible for everything that's happened to me and nobody can come save me and I have to take full responsibility is, is one of the scariest thoughts. So coming together as a group, they're actually fighting for somebody who can give them that container of safety of not having freedom such that they don't have to have that responsibility. One hundred percent. I mean, I really feel like isn't human history sort of the the desire for freedom in theory, but then actually craving totalitarianism. It's funny, isn't it? It's like even look at Russia, right? Like there is there is sort of a nationalistic craving for a Putin like figure, and there's always going to be dissenters, but there seems to be that seems to be sign. For such a deeply philosophical culture, it seems to be baked into their way of being. And I feel like America is just fascinating because it's based on the idea of independence. Right. Right? And we're – it's like almost like the the idea of America is up for review. It is. Right? And there's actually an astrological um, uh, cycle to that. But there's there's something – 
Mm-hmm. Sorry. There's something um, deeply fascinating about the idea that freedom and democracy is actually terrifying to people at its at its in its pure form. Yeah. Yeah, like this uh, decisions are too big. People are too it's too scary and people don't they want to blame the man. They want to blame someone. It's a much easier way to go through life even though it's chaos inside. Yeah. Then absolutely and taking personal responsibility. And you know what he what Eric the, the author of it says is the the antidote or that that like keeps you from ever even wanting that is creativity. And he talks about how, like, the, the, the founders of the Nazi party were all failed artists. And that they so – that they Yeah. And then it's also crazy how much he said this stuff starts out of boredom. Like, I was asking a friend of mine. He said, he said yeah, I'm kind of I, – I, I don't want to tell people, but I want to vote for Trump. I said, why? He's like, because I think Trump will really shake things up. And I think he'll really do something different. And I said, okay, what's that emotion that you're feeling when, when you think about that, when you want that? And he's like – excitement and we talked about how it's in it's it's in counteraction to a sense of right now feels a little too boring Mm -hmm. and so in the book he talks about how uh, hitler's campaigns were first funded by bored rich housewives in germany is that true that's what he claims at least yeah i mean there 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 are definitely comparisons (laughs) between the rise of hitler and what's going on in this country the just feeding on fear, demoralization. It's, I can't believe that's true. Is that really true? I mean, there's, there, I bet some fact checking could happen on that, but right. it, it, uh, it, it's one of the, th- the points that he makes in the book. Yeah, I think that there is, and I think there's sort of this, this deep human craving for a superhero to come in and just fix it all. And I really feel like it, it feeds into that that, that narrative. deep need. Yeah, yeah, I really do. I think it's like he's just going to come in and save us from all the terrorism and all the the bad in the world. And it's it's not it's it's emotional. Yeah. It, it's not rational because his rage will only incite and galvanize terrorists across the globe. He's got some good speechwriters or something because he just he knows what to say to the right people at the right time. Like even the APAC conference, he said everything that, that they think, needed to say. Here. You think it's the speechwriter? I think he's got. I no. think he. You think it's speechwriters? Well, when when he's on teleprompter, yeah. I mean, I think the gut comes in. Like you can see it in interviews, and they, there's this interesting video that breaks it down where he's very much just, um, you know. Subject, predicate, verb, like <laughs> ending with a powerful word. Yes. And it's very simple, easy to understand language that is oddly um, very powerful even though it's so trite. And you hear it and it just makes sense where he just says something to the tune of, um, you know, like something has to be done here. Mm-hmm. And the way he says it and the tone and everything, you're like, you're, you're right. Something does have to be done with those terrorists. <laughs> and that, it, and it's weird how your nervous system kind of goes, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because someone else is taking care of it. Yeah. It's not up to me. He's going to take care of it. And he's so – I think there's something about his level of certainty Absolutely. that has an effect on our nervous systems. Like as animals, if you're around with somebody – we have the subconscious ability to detect if there really is some fear in there, and we don't trust that fear. Whereas he's somebody, he doesn't have fear. He is just perfectly clear and certain. And regardless of the words coming in his mouth, out of his mouth, we we feel that. I 
I completely agree. And I think that there also doesn't have the, the language of a fourth grader. Didn't they do that? Like his Probably. vocabulary is like everything that they're huge, <laughs> terrific, nice. Everyone's nice. Did you Everyone see the video China's of the nice. eighth grader doing it? Like at this commencement speech? You've got to see it. The eighth grader does a commencement speech as the pre- presidential candidates. Mind-blowing. Okay, I need to watch that. Yeah, I, I, there is something oddly comforting about it, but then when you actually step back and think about it, it's you can feel your reptilian brain being pulled yes, into his narrative yes. and going, yes! And then it's, oh my God, I am just an animal, and that's it. And I am following the herd. And that's really, I haven't evolved past that at all. <laughs> And, you know, and his whole his, you know, there is something kind of and maybe I'll get lambasted for this, but there's something that I kind of bizarrely appreciate about the fact that what he's been married three times, like no one cares that he's not morally um, not sound because I, I, I don't equate that with morality, but just the sense that he's not he doesn't have moral rectitude. Yeah, well, right. the the, the book the book kind of talks about that. It talks about how if if you do have that, right. then you're able to shoot a hole in somebody's armor because that's their stance, that's their position. And then if you break that, then you show it, and it's like so th- there's 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 a perceived lack of integrity there. Whereas he doesn't go into that game at all. Yeah, and there's something. I mean, at the convention, at his speech, he even said, you know, have the evangelicals vote. I don't I don't think I deserve it. Right. And there was something that was the other that was the second moment that felt off the cuff and a little bit real. Real. Oh, no, I thought that was very planned. You do? Yeah. Like it was planned in its. Because think about it. Think about it. You've right. got you've got an evangelical who's, right. who's watching it, who in the back of their mind are right. saying, you That's know, true. this person doesn't really deserve. They're not pious in this way and that. And when he takes that on and says, you know, I know I might not right. deserve it, but isn't this best for the country kind of thing? But I don't think you that's think that, planned. I think it's planned. And I think it's. I think he is like, how did I get their vote on some level? So I think it's there's a truth to it, even though it's planned. Really? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I just feel like... I think like... he thinks he deserves everybody's vote, and that was just very consciously planned. Yeah, I mean, he is pretty manipulative. <laughs> I'm giving him too much credit. I just, I, I just... There's something about that that he can't claim moral rectitude that I actually appreciate because i think it's absurd what we hold right our politicians to right i think and every single one is in a sex scandal it's like we don't have to he's going to be in one yeah there are going to be <laughs> right <laughs> like hookers you know like what? you know what i mean like there's just no way there aren't so i just there's something about that that liberates that sense of moral righteousness right that i appreciate because it's so ridiculous yeah you know what i mean have you heard about the debates in lincoln's time my like, brother is a huge Lincoln like, aficionado. Apparently, they make these debates look like G-rated children's oh, yeah. programming. Like back then, they, three hours of just slinging the worst crap at each other. Well, that's the other thing. It's like because of because of um, you know the the democratization of our media and because of the advent of technology, everything feels <laughs> and feels heightened. Yeah, right. Whereas you had to show up. In Illinois to listen to those debates, <laughs> right, 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 by horse and buggy. And then also they keep making these comparisons to Andrew Jackson, hmm. um, that he was a populist, that he did not have experience before he came into the White House, that, you know, he would walk into the White House and, you know, throw these absurd, lavish parties, you know, not lavish in the sense that there would just would invite anybody, he everybody, the establishment 
couldn't stand him. At that point, he was the first, I think he was the first Demo- under the Democratic Party, the first president. Yeah. I think that's accurate. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, but that there's a similarity because whatever's happening, the Republican Party is no longer what it was. Right. So he's now the first candidate in whatever this new incarnation is. And who knows what we're opening oh, yeah. into. Yeah. It's like everyone was fighting and he just grabbed the sword <laughs> because like you guys are off fighting. I'm just going to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a it was a perfect cocktail yeah. or a perfect storm for him him to come in and right. really expose the I don't know lack of a better term expose the shadow. Yeah, because it's more dangerous in a way if it's seething underneath mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than if it's out in front. Totally right, totally. and sort of. Have you ever seen Drunk History? What's that? Oh my god! I feel like I don't know anything. It. You keep mentioning things. I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know oh, that. It's you got to watch some. Cl- it's on Comedy Central. They have comedians who get drunk and then they tell a story <laughs> in history, but then they reenact the story. You've got to see the one that's. Uh, it's a Philadelphia episode that is. It's on Hulu for sure. Um, where they talk about the race between Jefferson and Adams. Oh. It is hysterical. At one point, like they're just throwing stuff back and forth at each other. At one point, Adams just seeds the thought the, to the reporter, says Jefferson's dead. It's <laughs> just, just like he's dead now. He, you, you can only vote for me. Like at least I'm alive. Like that's how crazy it got. It's really. It's. I do think we always think our time is most heightened, and maybe that's because we have, you know, because it's technology and our weapons have gotten bigger and scarier but i i mean i just think at any point in history didn't people fear for their lives in every moment of the day yeah i i think about the difference like did you see the movie lincoln the one yes i loved it you know what yeah what stood out to me was the scene where there's the guy who's running back with news and he runs directly into the white house no locked door (laughs) no guards no no but i mean like that was different (laughs) completely and i think that you know we I just think it's – we think that safety is our natural birthright, mm. but it's it's not, right? And not to be macabre, but really we can all go at any moment, yeah. right? And safety is an illusion. Yeah. And it's it, – animals seem to be more attuned to that, obviously, but right. we, we push against it. And I – in many ways, we are living in the safest time in history oh, yeah. in America by far. Hugely, yeah. Right? So it's it's ironic that there's this fear that anything can go wrong at any moment because... Because there's a lot of sensationalism. I mean, you don't see every single car crash where somebody dies on TV. If you did, then you'd never go in a car again. Exactly. So I think that it, it really is just feels so manipulative. And it's funny because the, the Clinton-Kane ticket, it does feel like a throwback to the 90s but i was like i'll take the west wing the show again like that <laughs> like the 90s were okay you know i mean other than for rwanda but i mean it was you know it's so the, there, there there's your your vote and your bet and um and then we'll wrap this up um the where, like vote i i actually think is 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 a private man i won't even ask about that but where your bet your money would yeah. be like if you were to bet in Vegas like I'm just not even not even to try to affect the race but if I think I'm going to win money off this where are you putting your money um, I love that you said that because I was going to write something on Facebook the other day I, I did come out as I'm for her um, after the primaries but I was going to write this thing um, about how remember when who you voted for was private like where did that go there there is something I, I don't know i mean not that you shouldn't be in integrity and and be honest about 
your, you know, your beliefs, but there just seems to be like, that seems to be public knowledge and that it's everyone's right to know who you vote for. And we do, the voting booth is a private place. Yeah. So there's, so I just, I love Oddly, I learned it from, from Rush Limbaugh when he said he doesn't, didn't reveal, or at least didn't then reveal it. I don't know if he still doesn't, but it hit me as, wow, that's so smart because you might be clearly for it now, but what if there comes a day Mm -hmm. when you don't want to be, and if you change your story on that one, then, um, you know, then it's suddenly suspect. But if every year he says, you know, I'm not revealing that, then it's just every year it's like that. It's. It's true, although we can probably guess who he's going <laughs> right, to vote for. Right. So, I th- right, but I think that they're, you know, I, didn't Michael Moore say the other night on Bill Maher, he's like, it's going to be Trump. I, you know, I keep looking at Nate Silver's polls. I literally read, every, you know, every day. I wonder if there's a lot of people like your friend who don't want to publicly admit they're going to vote for Trump, but then they're going to get into the booth and vote for Trump. Right. The only thing that makes me put my money on Hillary, well, A, I, th- I like the choice of Kane. Um, and I think that's, I, th- I think that overall sh- that's going to do well for her. Um, but I think the electoral college will go in her direction. Like for, for the first time breaking that kind of thing? Like I think... You know, I think it's one of those things where it's the reverse of so popular vote versus okay, got it. Right, although who really knows who won that election? But I, I, th- I could see her. I just, I, you know, I don't know. I cannot imagine that a country that voted for Barack Obama for two terms would turn around and vote for someone who is really capitalizing on. Racism, well, but they're both change. They were both change-oriented candidates. They both came in to shake something up. I, you know, I think that it's one of those things where I'm too invested. Yeah. Because sometimes I look at the astrology of it, and I'm like, I, I'm too invested to to, to really see it, see it clearly. Yeah. And then just, and I'll just say this, and then on top of it, there's then the the more spiritual, detached part of me that is like. How do I know what's best for right. societal and universal unfolding? Like, how how do I how do I how do I really know? I mean, I'm one person with one lens, and you know, I have a certain upbringing which gave me a certain lens and a certain perspective on the world. But I, how do I how do I know? Yeah, what amazes me about this one? Somebody was just pointing this out as this kind of little detail. Every race before this, you'd see a ton of bumper stickers. Mm-hmm. You see none with this one, and I feel like. This is the first race I've ever seen. I think my dad said the same for him, um, where if you say you're for a candidate, you have to immediately be on the defensive. Immediately. Immediately. It's really – and you know what? It started in the primaries, hmm. right? Like I don't even – yes, with uh, with Obama and Clinton in 08, people definitely took sides. But the, especially on the Democratic side, like the – Bernie or bust and the pro the vitriol yeah. that it incites in people is it just I mean politics is Shakespearean and it's also a projection screen of our own personal mm-hmm. stuff and it becomes this place to play out our own agendas yeah. so I don't there is there is sort of like a sliding door part of me that it was like and I, I am pro Hillary but like I'm just like what would happen if Trump were president like would he just 
would he just basically give over the governing to someone else and just kind of wave his hand well, and kind of be— did you read the Tony Schwartz article? No, is this about this, that he really—I don't think he'd want to govern. I think that he'd just want to be kind of almost like the Bush-Cheney thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely could be that. But it's basically, he, you know, it's a, it's a really scathing article. But he, he says that, that, that unless it has to do with him, he just can't be bothered with it even. Um, so I think that it, one of two things will happen. Either that scenario will happen where he just really is delegating that all— right. Or he is very decisive and very clear and very quick. And I think if his staff figures out how to boil it down <laughs> into a tweet to tell him look that, that like there could be that interplay. But they're going to have to learn not to show whole briefing papers and have whole nuanced conversations around a, a conference table because that will not work for him. Like, and I feel like he just the only place he'd want to be is like in the situation room. Yeah. Like making that decision. But I feel like everything else. I, yeah, I don't. I do think there'd be a ton of delegation. I think that's right. I think that he doesn't – what would happen? He'd have to step down as CEO of Trump, right? He would have to. Yeah, I think so. It would be fascinating if he tries to do both. It would be kind of like – I've seen – remember when Jesse Ventura was uh, – you know, And I remember I, the, 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 the jumping the shark moment for me in that whole race. He was governor and he's on like the American Football League being a commentator. I'm like, this is all going down. If you have time to be a commentator on a football so league, not even, it was like arena football. It wasn't even like real American football. Then this, it's all going downhill. Yeah, I just feel like I thought about the convention. I was like, why does this feel like a giant ad for Trump International? Like it doesn't. So is really you just want to boost your numbers? And then what would you do? Because if you had to disinvest from your own company, I mean, how would, how would that even? We've never had. That circumstance, and I was like, had this whole kind of negative fantasy that I could observe and bring it back to my breath. But I had this little negative fantasy of like, this goes to the Supreme Court, and then it's like, you know, sep- not just separation of church and state, but like separation of commerce and state, and the sense of yeah, yeah, it could get really yeah. That's where my brain goes. I was like, what would happen? Well, Danielle, I could always talk to you for hours. <laughs> it's so fun to have you on the show. I loved being here. Yeah, thank you so much. A lot of fun. Anything you want to leave our audience with? Nothing that is coming. Cool. And uh, if, if they want it, are, are, oh, are yeah. you blogging or tweeting or anything where they would find it? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram uh-huh. um, what name? at Danny Beinstein, D-A-N-I-B-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Um, and then articles just coming out here and there. Um, so I am blogging, but through different avenues. And I'm just always posting on Facebook. Got so it. Find me there. Cool. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks so much, Robbie. Thank you. See you later, Culture Hackers.